0: So, this is a true story. I have a friend who, like many of us these days, is kind of worried about where South Africa is going. And as a result, she avoids all news at all costs, right? But what she does do a few times a week, a week is she logs onto Twitter to check the Twitter account specifically of Cape Town's mayor, Jordan Hill Lewis. And she says it makes her feel instantly better because the Honorable Mayor tends to tweet decidedly upbeat content. And I didn't know what she meant until I went and checked it out. And jeepers, Jordan Hill Lewis's Twitter account is a tonic for the soul. It is all good dogs who made drug raids. It's all vast forests of solar panels, you know, blanketing the whole Western Cape like an umbrella. It's like instant serotonin. I really recommend it. Question is, is the real picture so rosy? And particularly, perhaps, for South Africa's other cities. Joining Jordan Hill-Lewis on the stage for our first panel on South Africa's burning energy problem are Farai Chireche, who's an energy analyst from WWF, Dr. Crispin Olver, a man with a massive job as the executive director of the Presidential Climate Commission, and Heather Son, the managing director of Gamero Investments. And they are hosted on stage by current and future legends of South African journalism, Ferial Hafidji and Victoria
1: O'Reilly.
2: Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name's Ferial, and it is wonderful to be with you. My colleague, Victoria O'Regan, better known as Tori, will join us this morning. If you want to know exactly what was on the Lady R roll-on, roll-off ship out of Simonstown, Tori is your woman. (laughs) She can also guide you as to exactly how many stages of load, how many hours in a stage of load shedding. That's quite a skill, Tori. So, I've just read Andre de book, and I would strongly, strongly recommend it to you. He sets out, like he did here, exactly what he would have done for our energy future if he hadn't been floored by the patronage networks related to oil, related to coal, and related to the huge procurement budget at ESCOM. I don't see how we come out of it. And my dream, because I do have a dream, is that one day ESCOM will be like Telcom and SAA are for us today. One of very many choices we have as we choose our energy form ourselves. What is pretty clear to me is that this is going to have to be our future. And our panel today is very much geared at solutions and at being future focused. This, I would argue, is a panel of tomorrow's energy revolutionaries, and I am very excited that you all join us. So if I could start um, from Farai, if you could share with us in in a couple of minutes what does your dream energy landscape look like, and how do we get there?
3: Uh, thank you very much, Ferial, and um, good morning to everyone. Um, I think you know, the, 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 the topic and subject of this panel is the energy crisis, and I think you know, that is very well and true, but we also need to realize at the same time that we are also in a climate uh, crisis, and those are both two things that we need to deal with at the same time. Um, We know about the challenges uh, of climate change and we've known from research from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel uh, uh, on Climate Change, a global body of scientists, that the uh, effects of climate change are true and the actions that we deal in this decade are uh, are going to have a big impact on what we're going to see in the future. We're already going to seeing the the impacts of climate change. Uh, Just at the beginning of this year, there were farm workers who unfortunately lost their lives in the heat wave, and those are very dire consequences. The floods in Durban just last year, and coming back to the mother city, it's only five years ago where we had to deal with day zero issues. Now, these are only the effects that we're seeing now, and the more that we don't take action on climate, these actions are just going to get worse. So imagine, try to imagine um, what the situation is going to be like in the future. So from, from how I see the energy future is we are looking at uh, an energy future that is climate resilient, that uh, reduces the emissions that we have um, on uh, 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 the, uh, that, that limits the, the emissions um, into, in, into the atmosphere and leads us to a, a net zero carbon economy. And I believe all these are, are, are possible and I believe that we do need the right planning in place, proper planning from an energy perspective to make sure that we are aligned with this goal of net zero. We're seeing that um, as it stands in the energy context uh, of the country, it's, it's almost like we are... Um, you know, developing things at a whim and seeing the solution or a problem and thus responding to it. So we really need a holistic um, energy planning, which guides the way forward to that net zero future, which is good um, for everyone, for the planet, for the people in it, um, and also for the economy as well.
2: Thank you very much. People like you are going to be essential as we roll those old boulders out of the way. Um, Mayor Jordan Hill-Lewis, it's true what um, Rebecca says. Um, your Twitter feed is a tonic. Yesterday, I was looking at a Bloomberg story, um, which, which laid out in quite clear detail your plans to ensure that the city over the short term um, comes down to much lower levels of load shedding. But I do know you have a bigger vision than that, so do share it with us. And welcome.
4: Thank you very much, Ferial, and good, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I think you, you said that uh, this is a kind of dream of yours, that in the future, ESCOM is not such an important factor in our energy lives. Uh, and that is exactly our uh, dream as well, but it's not, it's not in the long-term future. We are busy building it right now because we, we have got zero confidence that the, the problems that we face as a country, as a city, are going to be fixed. Uh, the power problems in particular are going to be fixed by... Escom. If they are going to be fixed, they are going to be fixed by us, uh, and, and so we are, we are rapidly trying to buy uh, renewable power to add to our grid as quickly as possible from every source that we can possibly get it, uh, and, and that is primarily focused at our, at our supply crisis. It has a very important ancillary environmental benefits as well which we are not blind to. It's an important benefit, but actually the, the primary purpose is security of supply. Uh, and so I, I believe in the f- for our energy future, uh, Cape Town will rely a lot less on ESCOM in the future. We will, we, it will be a very long time before we, we uh, turn off the cable, so to speak, completely because we use about 2,500 megawatts at, at peak times from ESCOM. Uh, but if we can reduce our reliance on ESCOM significantly over the years ahead, we can have security of supply and we can have a much more beneficial supply mix for the, uh, for the environment as well.
2: In your term, give us some, some dates.
4: Oh, absolutely. We, we've said we've... No, I'm, I'm very happy to... <laughs> I'm very happy to commit to this and, and to be held accountable for it because it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's killing our local and our national economy. Uh, we have got a program to protect the city from four stages of load shedding over the next three years. And we uh, are absolutely on track to do that. We track it very closely. We track it every month. And that involves the procurement of about 700 megawatts. It's a very small amount, actually, Mm, if you look at our national energy crisis. Uh, But nevertheless, 700 megawatts to get it to connect to our city grid uh, because we we have to have it inside the city, the grid that we control uh, is is you know it takes a lot of doing a lot of projects to be constructed and connected so it 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 will s- uh, take a few years still, but we will be able to What's a few years it. we've said we've <laughs> said we want it done uh in the next thirty six months 36. Uh, so so the our procurement phase is actually done uh, so the you know the the State contracted procurement is extremely slow and time-consuming, but that process is actually done. So we're now in the process of securing uh, what's called financial closure for all of those projects. We then have to sign the power purchase agreements, the contracts essentially, and then they have to start building. Uh, and so as those projects one by one tick onto our grid, uh, it's, it's not going to be like flicking a switch overnight, but... Each project that adds to our grid uh, will s- slowly move us through the stages of load shedding protection until we can uh, protect against four stages of load shedding. Up until this year, stage four load shedding accounted for 97% of all load shedding. And recently, we've had stages above that, but we, we think uh, you know, we can get to stage four protection and then rapidly move beyond that as we add more programs to the Stage grid. six
2: makes your, your job harder, I know, but we'll come to more of that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So my bestie Heather over here, um, Director of Gamero Investments and also the past Chair of the Renewables Master Plan. Every time I chat to Heather, I get happy. He spends a lot of her time in the Northern Cape. Tell us about some of what you're seeing that's coming quite quickly.
1: And welcome. Uh- Yeah, Um, so as far as I think about what makes me excited about the future is the democratization of power. and how we find our individual power within our democracy to make a difference. So I think that South Africa is on a trajectory. We've been through our political processes, and now we are in the process of finding our individual agency. (laughs) And I, I really think, I mean, you have to, I think within a democracy you have to look at the smallest unit of a democracy, and that's the individual, that's the citizen. So the site of change has to be there, and I think wherever we find ourselves, whether we're individual citizens, whether we 're people in leadership positions or whether we mayors, we have to consider what it is that our pur- what is our purpose, what do we value, and what is our contribution so I think in terms of looking at this devolution, I think uh, currently people talk about a failed state, and so many definitions have been bandied about, but I think the, the important thing is to say, as in nature, and I'm so excited that we have a whole day to, on the earth, and I must commend Maverick for that. But in nature, there are periods of chaos, And in that period of chaos, there's an opportunity for reordering. And I think what we have now is an opportunity to figure what each and every one of our roles is in reordering. What I see in the future and what I see happening is that individual energy generation in households is occurring. But I don't know if everybody understands that with every incremental household going off the grid, the subsidization model for those who can not afford energy, mm-hmm. the, the gap widens. What, that, what then happens is the potential for energy to increase per unit cost will certainly go up. People who are in a position to accumulate assets and put it in the best return location, which is in investments, will have an, an increase in their value. And people who are at the lower rung will live increasingly hand to mouth. In that, in our democracy, we have to consider how, what is it that each of us cares about. I just currently spoke with Miguel Isaac, who is doing an MA in, this, on, on, in a study in this regard. And she interviewed someone who answered her by saying, well, I really don't care if I have energy, that's what I'm focused on. And I said to her, she should be so thankful that she got a direct answer because now we know what we're working with. But the challenge I'd like to give is that this increasing income disparity is a problem for everyone. So we have to think about what is our agency and how can we assist. I think some of the interventions um, that the city is undertaking, trying to procure power uh, for for everyone, um, but then again we have to ask of our leaders what is it that they care about and then that accountability in our democracy between what values we'd like to see replicated in our leadership versus what we value, we can see that there's a match. So I think this is an awakening time in our democracy. Um, and I think energy is a proxy for that. I think we'll see it in very many other in in very many other sectors as well. I'll talk a bit about hydrogen in a in a second. Uh, that's where we are focused, but we can keep that for later. As far as the South African renewable energy master plan goes, it was a social compact between business, government, and labour, and it was an attempt to determine how, for every megawatt procured, we could increase the num- the amount of local So more components manufactured in South Africa, more jobs and so on. The the thing that I was most hopeful about in that process is how each of those components, business, government and labour, were prepared to come to the party and discuss what the solutions might be. So despite what one always hears that these are contestational groupings, um, we actually, when we were given a specific challenge, people were prepared to work together on the solution. So I think th- those are some of the um, examples I see.
2: Thank you very much, Heather. Um, Dr. Chippy Over, the Executive Director of the Presidential Climate Commission. You know very well our country is under a whoop of stage six at the moment. Um, people are suffering and people are really being um, kneecapped by what's happening. And yet you say that we should realize that that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Please share with us.
5: Very much so. Uh, Thank you, Ferial. And a very good morning, everyone. It's uh, As Heather said, a fantastic gathering. It's incredible to have all these minds and ideas circulating in in this forum. Um, So, you know, it's very easy to be extremely depressed at the moment. I mean, we've seen load load shedding steadily accelerating and it is having, there's no doubt about it, a devastating effect on our economy. You heard from the governor of the Reserve Bank yesterday. It's a grim economic output. And uh, this effect is having an absolutely devastating effect on poor people and, and people's jobs and livelihoods. Um, But behind the scenes, there's a lot that's happening, um, and that's already baked into the system. And probably the single biggest reform was the lifting of the cap on embedded generation. And I know it sounds a little bit of a technical sort of reform to applaud, but it essentially allows any private company or municipality to generate as much power as they want to. There's, you know, it used to be a 10 megawatt cap. Then it got lifted to 100 megawatts. Now there's no capital. Um, so your only constraints are the other regulatory constraints: the EIA's, getting grid access, getting the budget quotes from ESCOM, registering your project with NURSA. And what this reform has done. Uh, you can see in the numbers that are being registered with NURSA. So, in the last quarter, uh, f- so the first quarter of this year, um, uh, there were 2,400 megawatts registered with NERSA. The whole of last year, there was 1,600 megawatts. The year before that, it was in the low, it was like 150 megawatts. So, we're, you know you're seeing this... Hockey stick exponential acceleration in the number of, of, of new generation, mostly renewable energy projects coming through the system. Um, the one big constraint we have is that you know, in parts of the country, Northern Cape, Western Cape, the grid is actually maxed. So it's very difficult to put new energy projects on the grid there but you've got other parts of the country with considerable available grid capacity. So that includes Mpumalanga, KZN, Gauteng, Limpopo, Northwest. Um, And what's happening now is a lot of projects are developing in those areas and hooking into the grid. So, for instance, in Mpumalanga, there is 3,500 megawatts of major wind farm projects. Being driven by companies like Cerity Green, Enertrag, Earth and Wire, uh, I was speaking to Mike Mulcahy from Green Cape earlier. He was rolling out the stats. I mean, it's it's really exciting stuff that's in the pipeline. So, you know, this this transition is underway. Um, it's happening globally. Uh, you heard the announcement from the International Energy Association a few days ago. I mean investment in clean energy and the, the new energy economy has now is now 1, 1.7 times higher than the investment going into old energy fossil fuel economy we're basically putting a billion dollars a day as the world into the new energy economy it's a massive level of investment and it's good you know it's good it's good for climate it's good it's good for the economy it's also good for jobs, so we've just in fact last year we passed the fifty percent mark in terms of employment. There are more people now working in the new energy economy than they're working in That oil in south and gas.
2: Africa in the world
5: no globally 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 uh we're we're a little bit behind, but you know make no mistake this is this is a global transition of the order of the industrial revolution. Thinking that we will somehow be able to keep our finger in the dike and stop the transition, uh, you're not understanding the nature of what's going on. Correct. There, you know, there are profound technological and financial and social changes underway that. We are going to be swept along with.
2: But um, when you got some powerful fingers in the deck,
4: it doesn't matter.
2: It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, the it, revolution it, continues. Huh?
4: It won't. It won't make yeah, any difference. Uh,
5: Jordan's right. I mean, the, this old idea that someone sitting in charge of mineral resources and energy could dictate the pace at which this transition happens. Uh, it's, it's the emperor with no clothes.
6: Thank you very much, Rufi. Over to you, sorry. Now, I want to talk very quickly about something that is really on everybody's minds, car power ships. Oh, no.
5: <laughs>
6: <laughs> the floating gas ships that are being touted by government as the solution. How on earth are we spending 200 billion rand on these power ships when our entire just transition investment plan is pegged at $1.5 trillion.
5: So is there any way I can answer that that I'm not going to get into trouble? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay, let me, I mean, I'm going to give you a personal view, uh, not a climate commission view, if that's uh, possible. Um, so... First of all, on gas, I mean, we're, we're, we're heading towards a renewable energy dominant energy system. Um, the primary challenge that you have uh, with such a system is how to store power and to even the load so that it corresponds with demand in the economy and society. Uh, for that you need uh, considerable amounts of battery storage, and you know batteries have just reached utility scale where they can be deployed. It's still early stages on that technology, but we can start to deploy them at, at, at scale. Um, we've got some pumped storage capacity in this country, which also acts as a way of storing power, pumping water up, and then running it down. Um, but, in certainly, in the medium term, and I would say for the next twenty years you 've got to be able to balance the grid with peaking power and the most classic example of peaking power is gas fired <coughs> peakers uh, uh, or like we 've got in south africa we 've got two diesel peakers um, uh, that 's a little bit more polluting than gas. Uh, So I know a lot of the environmentalists are like dead opposed to any fossil fuels at all. I have to say, frankly, from a personal point of view, we need some gas in the system in the medium term. That's gonna allow us to scale up renewables much more than we can in the future. The question is what form that should take. Now typically, power ships are gonna be more expensive than fixed land-based assets where you can amortize the cost of that asset over the full lifespan of, lifespan of the asset. So would, you would use power ships uh, uh, potentially. I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to power ships as a technology, but I think their role in place would be as an, as an urgent, immediate emergency measure to fill a gap for a couple of years the idea of entering into a 10- or 20-year contract to purchase power from a power ship, I think is ill-conceived. And, you know, I can't comment... on <laughs> uh, And I, I can't comment on the issues of price and integrity. I mean, what we're all obviously worried about is that this deal is priced way beyond what it should be priced at, and we're worried about corruption. We're, you know, There are hygiene issues that we're clearly keeping our eye on.
2: Farai, <laughs> let's talk about those hygiene issues in car power ships. So I want to ask a question. When I've travelled to Turkey, I see so much solar um, from the mayor as well. And I'm wondering if these car power ships by Karadin is are not a neo-colonial enterprise. Why do they only come um, to Africa, to war in parts of the Middle East, and the cost of them is excessive? Um, what's your view? And then there's another question from the audience here for you. What innovative strategies or technologies do you believe hold the greatest potential for transforming the energy sector, uh, particularly for addressing sustainability and climate change concerns? It's a big question, but we only have so little time <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, thank you very much for for that question um, and uh, i, you know, I, I don 't think i uh, would like to you know i 'm qualified enough to speak on the geopolitics of it on why power cars, yeah, on car power ships um, uh, come to you know the south, the, the global south mostly um, but I think as to, to, to the points that Crispin has raised, there could be a role for them in the short term um, to address the, the, short, the, the, the what, energy crisis. What, two to
2: three years? Because we're looking at striking 20-year agreements with them.
3: Yeah, it could be two to three years, that, that's the thing. But we also need to ask the question, how long is it going to take to get those powerships online? Uh, now, there are various, um, you know, depending on who you ask, they'll tell you how long it it takes, some will say three, mon- three months, some will say one to two years. Yeah. But if it is indeed one to two years, what else can we do in one to two years? That's sufficient time to um, you know, develop our renewable energy capacity. So those things really need to be taken into account in terms of the planning. When we say, yes, it's, we are going to get power ships so for three to five years, what is the lead time to get into that? And what else can we do uh, to get to that point. So those are some of the considerations that we we need to take and, and look into account. Um, in terms of you know, sustainability, I think there is no doubt that the solution or the answer um, lies in uh, increasing the renewable energy capacity um, in, in, for, for us to decarbonize. I think that is the future. I think a lot of the modelling done uh, in South Africa by world-renowned research institutions has said that, you know, the future is, uh, is a renewable-based capacity. And there are questions uh, around some of the intermittency issues and which could be uh, addressed by, among many things, such as gases, um, as Crispian has uh, uh, alluded to. Um, but we, we need to answer, I guess, an- another important question of, you know, where is that gas going to come from? I think that is a big, significant question. Um, around that development uh, or, or the, around that use of gas. I mean, if we're talking about the most, uh, domestic or, or the local exploration, I think there's a big risk in that. Um, of the modelling studies that i have alluded to, either <clears throat> done by the UCT's Energy System Research Group or NBI itself, is the amount of gas that could need for picking is not sufficient for... Um, for, 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 or does not uh, justify long-term exploration. So that is, that is the one issue. Then which leaves us to getting gas from somewhere else, tying us to all the dynamics around uh, paying something on, uh, pegged on a dollar and all those economic fallouts could be. So there's a big question there. Um, so I, I guess in that we would need to look more, invest more heavily in other sustainable storage uh, mechanisms. Looking more research into batteries and putting that on the grid, um, and looking at how we design our our grid systems themselves, so that we look at how they can manage that um, that that intermittency. Uh, there's always this talk about baseload and you know how that was started initially was on looking at what is the cheapest way to provide energy when uh, a power that is constantly giving you energy like a coal fire plant was the cheapest and you'd balance the rest with um, a variable like picking plants. Now things have changed. Renewables are the cheaper option. So how do we integrate them and change, uh, and change the way we do? A big imp- important part of it there is investment in the grid. I can't stress that enough. Uh, it's really important to, to strengthen that grid so that we get more renewables um, onto the system and also looking at how do we um, spread the geographic distribution there's always we're looking at renewables in the in the Cape provinces Crispin has alluded to having more um, wind and uh, solar projects in Pumalanga that is exactly what we need to kind of try to balance um, that that discrepancy also and to to remember also that wind and solar are also complementary sometimes uh, early mo- early evening or early morning the wind is usually quite strongest and then the sun comes in um, during the day so looking and um, so 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 that grid Uh, The grid balancing is quite important for for those different aspects. Also, modern smart grid systems to make sure how do we balance demand and supply is going to need quite critical research to make sure that um, we we can adopt more uh, renewables on the system. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Um, May I've got many questions for you here. Um, If Cape Town does build its own capacity and get more protected from load shedding, will ESCOM not just force Cape Town to cut more? Uh, to shed more, um, and then another one from Andre, uh, Andre Kreivachen. What's the progress, and how do you plan to bring residential properties into the mix to bring their excess solar onto the grid? And will you subsidise or reward those ratepayers? I know you're doing it already, but people often ask us whether the tip back tariff is sufficient. Mm. Huh?
4: Okay, so uh, let me just deal with those two quickly. Firstly. No, ESCOM won't force us to cut more. The difference between us and what happened in that town in the free state is we have always understood, uh, the rules from ESCOM have actually always been pretty clear, that if you want to protect against load shedding, you have to have additional capacity that you bring online when load shedding starts. It can't be part of your base load generation capacity. That is what that town was doing, which was actually always pretty... Uh, pretty clearly, not not allowed in terms of the load shedding regulations. The idea that we have to have load shedding regulations is crazy, but we do. Uh, the, so, Cape Town uses Steenbras, which we only when we get the power alert, the same power alert that you get, we get it sometimes minutes before load shedding starts. We switch on a Steenbras hydroelectric dam and it is it is a thing of beauty i love that power it's the best <laughs> running power station in south africa right now the cheapest power as well and it allows us to provide up to two stages of load shedding protection that we that we currently provide but it is switched on it is it is kept in reserve capacity and that's why it is still allowed and and why ESCOM okay. will not force us to cut further in terms of homes uh, we are trying as best as we can to bring home generation into our grid. We've done a couple of major policy shifts over the last year. Cape Town has actually always paid a a feed-in tariff since 2014, we we were the first city to do so. That feed-in tariff has never been raised since 2014 until this year. It has been raised by a further 20 cents uh, per kilowatt hour, so it's now gone from one rand zero four, one rand and four cents to one rand uh, 24 cents uh, the, we have removed the cap on how much power you can sell to the city. Previously we would let your account run a credit and when your account hit zero, uh, then we no longer paid you for power that you fed back. So in other words, you had to be a net consumer. You can now be a, 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 a prosumer. You can, you can produce as much as you want and sell back as much as you want to the city. We will buy it all. And if your account runs into deficit... In other words, we owe you money. We will pay you that money. We will actually send you the cash for that, uh, for that power if Buy you want By e-wallet. By yeah. e-wallet, exactly. <laughs>
2: excellent. You the, really do want many more of us to come live here, huh?
4: The, the third, and I, I know that someone's going to, to heckle me in a second. That's why I must, I must get this in. The third important thing is coming later this year, and that is to reduce the price of the feed-in meter. I know that the <laughs> – I knew it was coming <laughs> – the feed-in meter, the, the, the smart meter that you were talking about, the smart grid meter, is still too expensive in Cape Town at about 12,000 rand. That's, that's really fine.
2: expensive.
4: That's fine for a business who's, who's spending a million rand on a system. 12,000 rand is, is uh, neither here nor there. But, uh, but for a home, that's too expensive. Uh, we have found a cheaper meter that, whose quality we are comfortable with. It is going through a battery of tests. Uh, we are ordering sufficient quantity to be able to to sell it to you. So I can say that probably within the next uh, six months or so, we will have a meter that is less than half that price. Uh, and that will be... That will be the, the only remaining obstacle. Uh, some people say that it's it's still too difficult to register our system. Uh, so we are working on simplifying the registration system, but that's an, that's an admin obstacle. All of the technical and financial obstacles will be or either have already been or, or soon will be removed.
2: Thank you very much. So a useful fact, uh, Vietnam, which really I think is, should be our poster country, um, they doubled the feed-in tariff um, from what was the, the version of the ESCOM tariff, and I think that you saw benefits there to that country shifted its load shedding, as it had, um, to energy surplus over, I think, two to three years. I still want to study that closely and maybe someone on the panel can help us. Tori
6: had a question for Heather. Yes. Heather, um, I wanted to talk quickly about green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So South Africa's Just Energy Transition Investment Plan focuses on decarbonising and developing three key sectors, and that is electricity, um, electric cars, and um, investing in green hydrogen. So how can we use green hydrogen, why is it necessary for us to include it in our energy mix and why is it important that we can, what benefits can we get from exporting it?
1: Okay, so um, the benefits to South Africa in the first instance is a little ways off. Um, because it's a new technology that's being developed. Um, Essentially what it is, it is a way of, through an electrolysis process, splitting the water molecule into pure water and into hydrogen. And the process, the energy used to do that electrolysis process is what gives it its colour, So, if you talk about pink hydrogen, it means that the energy source is nuclear. If you talk about um, uh, blue hydrogen, it's usually using some form of carbon capture where natural gas is is the feedstock. Green hydrogen uses purely renewable sources. So, it will be wind, solar and battery, some combination thereof. Um, currently, to start, like every so, when you when you combine that with nitrogen, you get hydrogen in its stable form, which is ammonia, and ammonia can be transported safely around the world. Um, South Africa is at an advantage because it's got three basic needs: wind, uh, solar, and land. So um, it's become uh, the the driving force behind hydrogen is massive demand because Europe, in terms of trying to meet its net uh, zero carbon uh, objectives has realized and come to the conclusion that it cannot get there without converting to hydrogen as an energy vector. So an energy vector means that it can be used in very many different forms. It can be used as directly as a fuel which means that your engines would have to be converted, so there's a cost in that, so you can already see why um, there may be a lag for South Africa to start to use it immediately. It can be used as a feedstock into fuel cells, like a battery, and that's developing quite rapidly in South Africa with uh, fuel cells being manufactured here. But this drive from Europe uh, to decarbonize ha- comes with incentives. And mm-hmm. it also allows South Africa to jump onto this opportunity um, at an early stage where it can use incentives to start to transition its own economy. So the idea is that if we can export um, our hydrogen, and capture some of those revenues locally, we can then start to transition our economy towards hydrogen. Um, The big challenge is, and this is where we need whole systems approach, is um, why would we take our electrons or our insulation from our sun, use our grid, uh, manufacture hydrogen, put it on ships and give it to Europe when we have a load shedding problem in South Africa. So that is a challenge, and it is um, something that companies need to figure out. Um, Some of the ways in which one can do that is to supersize your renewable energy component, offer some to the grid, and offer the rest to the hydrogen manufacturer. Why I say it's a whole systems approach is that it needs um, some coordination to ensure that we get the benefit from the export, we recoup some of the those um, Those benefits to our country, and we also manage to optimize what we need for the grid. Um, I, th- I think another constraint is grid capacity, and I think we, we need to coordinate our efforts so that as grid capacity develops um, we can start to also bring more of our renewable energy into the country because there's the capacity to absorb it. So it's a whole systems approach. And our view is that we have to look at both opportunities because what we do know about sectors is that you get a premium in an early stage and over time you, you know the prices come down and it becomes more competitive. So we, what we have to be sure of as South Africa is if we identify it as a credible opportunity, opportunity uh, that we do form part of this early stage.
2: Thank you, Heather. Um, so we're going to start winding up with, uh, with questions from our audience. So Chippy, last year at COP27, I was so proud when South Africa and Indonesia were the talk of COP because they had both managed to strike these really um, far-reaching but also um, so Energizing about our future. Um, ours is called the Just Energy Transition Investment Program, the JET IP. Is our JET IP in danger now because of the noise around our energy landscape and also because of our geopolitical positioning? If you look at Lady R and what, ha- what has happened between the US, South Africa, EU countries similarly concerned.
5: Yeah, so you know uh we we were uh, uh you know we we broke boundaries by uh putting our jet ip on the table uh, and there was that announcement at cop 26 the the political declaration um and then we spent uh, most of the year, uh, uh as a country putting this investment plan together um and that's what we took to cop 27 um and you're right i mean i think South Africa went there as a collective, government, business, civil society. We were all standing behind this very ambitious investment plan. Um, But we're not the only country in the world. Um, uh, And there's a crop of similarly constructed economies. So middle, middle to lower income countries that are very fossil fuel dependent. And, you know, Nigeria, Indonesia, Vietnam, we're all of a sort of similar generation of countries. And what the G7 countries have been doing is starting a program of developing investment plans for all of those. So it's now a much more competitive market. Uh, We are, you know, we, we are fooling ourselves if we think we're just going to stay the darlings of the world um and uh you know other countries are are moving in and taking up the space so it it's certainly not helpful where we in the, where, where we have different ministers and actors sending out different messages and uh, you know the the problem we have at the moment is is one of coherence. You know, government is not coming across in a consistent way on the JET IP, and it's, it's now a, a dog show. I mean, anyone can you know, stand up tomorrow and express their view and say, we're holding back this transition, coal is lovely, we're gonna stay here forever. Um, uh, and you know our development partners are very confused. Uh, Are they
2: confused? Are they sitting on their money?
5: Well, n- no. I mean, I I think we're some way away from them actually saying we're not putting the money on the table. Um, but you you know, there's only so long that you can play uh, the game in this way, and we you know we we stand at risk of other countries assuming a more prominent leadership role and uh, us getting downscaled in terms of the uh, funds that are on the table. I do want to say, I mean, uh, if you look at the uh, total investment plan, so the investment plan is $1.5 trillion, uh, up to 2030.
2: With the Rand at 20, it's probably a little <laughs> more. <laughs> Almost at 20, I yeah. should sure.
5: About $2 And, trillion. and, and the IPG... Offer is only you know uh, a portion of that. So it's the it's eight billion dollars, um, uh, hundred billion rands, um, uh, and the bulk of the investment plan is going to come from commercial private sector investment, and from the state. You know, putting public sector money into this. So uh, the, you know what happens to the IPG is not everything. But it obviously is a very important part of it because it puts this bullet of grant money and very concessional funds on the table that allow us to structure very creatively a whole lot of projects, including the sort of stuff that Heather's driving on on hydrogen and the stuff that Jordan's doing in the city of Cape Town. And I do just want to applaud these two people. I mean, they're breaking the mould. They're getting real stuff moving, and it's very important, I mean, particularly at a metro and local government level that we start to, you know, um, the local government energy model, you know, based on simply selling power uh, to a set of customers is shifting very radically. I mean, municipalities are now becoming purchasers of power. They wheel power across the grid. They've got to work out how to make that an economically viable option Um, and we need, you know, these best practice case studies to emerge, which hopefully we can then start to roll out to the rest of the country.
2: Thank you very much, (laughs) Farai. Thank you, Chippy. Big question, and you have about a minute to answer it. Why are we even dabbling in nuclear from from somebody watching?
3: Uh, well, I, I was looking at the you know the description of the uh, this panel, and it was saying um, South Africa's energy problems and the nimble move towards nuclear. Um, there's nothing nimble about nuclear, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of very interesting to 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 see that because I don't think we should be looking at it, uh, especially new nuclear. It's very expensive, it takes a long time to get on the grid, um, 7, 15 years, so we don't have that time um, to move uh, to, to, to 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 solve our energy crisis or load shedding issues, so we shouldn't really go there, that's all I can say.
2: Thank you very much. The same question for Heather and for the Mayor, Heather. Um, uh, Charlie Quint asks, what can individual people do to mitigate the growing income gap? If we go solar to protect ourselves, how do we balance that against the lowest income households being impacted? Energy apartheid is a real risk and a threat, please. Mm.
1: Well, that's not an easy question <laughs> and nice to, nice to see you or hear from you again, Charlie. I do know Charlie. Um, it's definitely not an easy uh, um, answer, but but what I thought about when I was thinking about coming here and raising this point, the the main thing that I really wanted to land is that we should care, and um, and you know there are many people working on various initiatives, like for example the fact that there is capital and there is need. But somehow, this bridge between capital and need is not met. Somehow, there's something missing. And we've been brainstorming, a group of us, and trying to understand what what is it that we are not. And there's something I feel um, that's still alive in all of us, that when we say... I am my brother's keeper, or I am my sister's keeper. How do we define who that brother and sister is? And how do we define who we care about? And where do we find the site for our little demonstration to make a difference? So I feel that if we don't... uh, the, the. you know, I mean, there may be within, there may be funds that we can start to try and uh, put together or work with this, with the, with the city and figure out what are they doing to ensure that income, I, I've heard of a, um, initiative on backyard dwellers that are currently going on in the city to understand the plight of backyard dwellers and the the provision of um, electricity to backyard dwellers. And there's a policy concern that currently makes it impossible, but can be addressed. And it looks like there's a willingness to address it. So, you know, I don't think there's an elixir and one size fits all because it's a democracy. But it is about asking what is it that I am currently doing and what is it that I can do to contribute to make a difference and find those sites of intervention. That's the best that I can do right now. I myself am considering you know, what to do to go off grid. Um, I, I realize that that is going to cause a burden and further inequality. And in my business, what I'm trying to do is understand from a hydrogen point of view what is the ecosystem. So, what is the what's happening in Saldana Bay? We've engaged with the municipality, and we were challenged by the minister then of infrastructure, uh, pa- Patricia DeLille, who said that it's not enough to talk to the municipality; you have to talk to the communities. So now, as a business person, I'm taking a very important, very critical risk to dilute the hours in my day to engage, but I realized that if I don't build a willing and available and sustainable ecosystem, the project is not going to be sustained. And that's my plight. My plight is that just with one person having a solar panel and being off grid is not creating a stable society. So find the places of intervention. Don't be complacent or short-termist. Find out where are those um, possibilities for intervention and, and, and make a difference. Try and find it and make a difference. Be an active citizen. That's my plight. Thank, Thank you, you. very
2: much. Last word. Last word, um, Jord- Mayor Jordan. Um, the Gini coefficient in energy is a real risk. How, you do, how do you think about it?
4: So... Uh, of course, I, I, I agree with what Heather has said, uh, and, and Heather's a remarkable business person and understands the economics very well. But I, I would just like to add a slightly different perspective. If you look at the price of... <clears throat> excuse me. If you look at ESCOM energy prices right now, they're sky high. The, the price that we are being quoted for solar power now is, is 70 cents a unit uh, ferial. It's a fraction of ESCOM's price. It's a the no-brainer, thing
2: that, right?
4: The thing that brings it up to be competitive or even slightly more than ESCOM is the cost of battery storage at the moment. But those prices are collapsing all the time. There's a kind of Moore's law applying to battery storage as well. So, we have this v- grossly ineffective, inefficient, corrupt state monopoly that is setting energy prices in South Africa. That is being destroyed every day and, and uh, you know, the, the faster the better. And... Uh, and over time, I actually see energy prices, a potential for energy prices to come down again in South Africa's future. Because the more that we move towards cheap renewables and the more that battery storage and other forms of storage get cheaper, that must feed through to the consumer at some point.
2: Ten years? So, hmm. so
4: you must tell me if this is crazy, Chris. I don't know. But just, just thinking, thinking of it as an economist and looking to how pricing works in South Africa, I don't think that energy inequality is, uh, is something that we have to be desperately concerned about for the long-term future. I agree with Heather that it is absolutely relevant for at least the next five to 10 years. It is absolutely relevant, and it it concerns me in local government finance as well, because you have to make those books balance uh, as more and more people check out of the grid. Uh, But but I'm very optimistic about the the long-term future for, for energy inequality, because actually I think we could have a future where energy prices are way more competitively priced and actually uh, much more affordable for the public.
2: Thank you. From your lips to Gwede's ears. (laughs) Thank you very much. So what you see here is a generational change in how we think about energy. Thank you to a wonderful panel. Thank you, Tori, very much. (laughs)